Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. As I was preparing today's reading, you two, it was so enthralling. It was so plot oriented, so full of imagery (laughs) that I was moved to seek a film adaptation to witness. And it turns out in 1970, a movie entitled Waterloo came out and it has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Roger Ebert's review of this film is like four paragraphs long, which is less than half his usual length for a film review. Oh, man. Gives it two stars and basically just tears it, just tears it a new one. Oh, no. So apparently there's a gaping hole in the film adaptation scene of our era. And somebody needs to pick it up and do it because what an enthralling section. Did you guys not feel like you were watching a movie reading this? Oh, I definitely did. There were like, it was so violent as we were reading and I was so engaged with the reading that I had to take a break and put my head between my knees. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> so Megan doesn't like blood. Very good. I Emily, don't, what did I don't you like think? <laughs> I thought it was good. Yeah. I, I also was surprised. I had prepared myself for a Tolstoy level slog and yes. was surprised to find that it was not too bad. It was actually kind of, you know, nice. <laughs> it read much more like um, like a dramatization of a battle than a dry historical retelling, like much more like Killer Angels. Have you guys yeah. read that? Yeah. Oh, man. It was. I Great thought it, it reminded too. me a lot of that. You know, the Battle of Bunker Hill scene came to mind a lot. Although I have to say, as a reader, my number one challenge has always been picturing geographical descriptions. Oh, yeah. And I'm getting better at it as I get older, but I really struggle with like when they're like on the western side, there was a hillock and an undulating plain, but there was an escarpment on the yeah. Left. Like I just I can't like I can't visualize. It's horrible. Didn't you think the capital <laughs> A image that he used was helpful though? Like yeah. I've never seen someone do that before. And <laughs> letters I got. Yeah. <laughs> letters we can do. <laughs> but don't you get stressed out? Maybe this is just me, and maybe this is just revealing of my personal anxiety levels. But I get really stressed out by like I kept going back to that paragraph mm-hmm. to make sure I knew where <laughs> each city was on the A. <laughs> this is yeah. Emily for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> She's exact. She's precise. She's his. <laughs> historical (laughs) i'm like capital a i got this it's kind of a handicap to be in a historian though not being able to picture maps (laughs) yeah no kidding you need that it turns out now i thought the a imagery was really helpful also it helps me to remember that when a guy is describing a battle like this in prose west is left west is left east is right north is yeah you have to picture it like a it's like a compass rose yeah Yeah. oh and that helps a ton that helps a ton. But either way, though, I, I agree with you guys. This felt like an it felt narrative mm-hmm. enough to keep me really, really engaged. There was some beautiful imagery we'll talk about a little bit later. I, th- I know Megan has thoughts on the 
the nature imagery in contrast with the battle imagery. But I want to start with the Tolstoy comparison because yeah. we just finished War and Peace at great personal cost. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a there was another important Napoleon moment. I mean, there were Napoleon moments throughout, but we got Austerlitz in War and Peace, right? And that was also a pretty detailed battle narration. How does it compare? What do you guys think? Well, I love that we, I mean, I know that we have a lot of people joining us who didn't, were, were they weren't with us for War and Peace. Right. So I don't want to like wax yeah, give too me, eloquently Give me a couple of sentences it, but... on Tolstoy's version though. Like how does he undertake to write a battle like this? Well, I'm going to leave that to you. What I was going to say is that I thought it was fun that in this section, Hugo says that the sun rose at Austerlitz for Napoleon and here at Waterloo, the sun set. And so because we just read War and Peace, I thought it was kind of a fun bookend to that experience. It may and even be part of the reason we chose. That. Yeah. I mean, it's just um, the fact that Napoleon features as a character and the way that Hugo characterizes him. I was like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. I've met him before. You know, yeah. it must there must be some truth to what Napoleon was like, because mm -hmm. I recognize this character from War and Peace. Hmm. Megan, what about you? How would you how would you characterize the difference between these two authors and the way they write a, a Napoleon battle? Mm. Well, I suppose the, there is actually a word for that. Napoleonic. Yeah, Napoleonic I battle. <laughs> I actually thought there were a lot of similarities in the way that they describe a battle. Because with Tolstoy, what we noticed is him vacillating wildly between <laughs> a, a historical philosophy and mm -hmm. really personal, up-close, experiential moments with characters. And the same thing seems to be happening here in, in Tolstoy's attempt to get us close to the battle. He says on at the end of chapter, I guess it's chapter three of our section for today, he says, we leave the historians to their struggle. We are merely a distant witness, a passerby on the plain, a researcher bending over this ground steeped in human flesh, perhaps taking appearances for realities. But that's not our experience with the rest of his story. We get very close and personal, so close and personal with the events that I felt sick to my stomach. So he, he is trying to do both things that Tolstoy was doing, present us with a reading of history and show us what it was like, bring those ghosts in the land back again so that we can experience the conflict with them. Mm. One difference I think that is really helpful is that Hugo makes himself a character on the scene mm. in a way that Tolstoy kind of speaks as God, God as narrator. He's the authoritative yeah, no voice right. presenting us or like just stating his argument because this scene opens with Hugo traveling himself to the battlefield in 1861 mm -hmm. it's a little more measured we know that it's hugo who's arguing he's not i mean he is speaking authoritatively but from his own voice that's that, a good does point. that make sense yes it really does even that last line that i just read perhaps taking appearances for realities there is a humility in that sentence that i don't think we would have found in tolstoy he says here's what i can perceive <laughs> And this may not be what actually happened, but this is what I see. Here's, here's what we think. He uses the we a lot. Mm -hmm. Here's what we think, but we weren't there. And in the end, he ends his historical philosophy, and this may be still in someone's thunder, but it seems to me that Hugo comes down on the side of providence guiding these events rather than either mere chance or the actions of a great man. 
he said, it's, it's a little bit of everything, but mostly it's a providential hand. It's destiny that makes this battle end this way. Yeah, I love that. And it's definitely true, which is a little bit more pleasing. And I, I don't know that the two authors would have disagreed with each other, really. But Tolstoy's multiplicity of causes mm-hmm. is sort of mirrored here and then sharpened into a point and humanized or, or mm-hmm. not humanized, deified, I suppose. But given yeah. a face in the hand of God who has decided that Napoleon has enough already, dude. But I do think and I and we were talking about this before we got on the air. I picked up. A humorous note underneath the surface. And I think Hugo's probably aware of it. I don't think he would have left it in unless unless he wanted his readers to be in on the joke. But among competitive types, maybe even <laughs> particularly among competitive men, when it comes to games of strategy or of strength, especially if there's a little bit of chance involved in the game itself, and you lose, you will do anything, anything in your power to convince the room that the element of chance is the only thing that has overcome you. Mm. <laughs> your, your opponent's strategy may have been good. It may even have been as good as yours, but it was not better, I promise, because that is not how we do. We do mm. not admit such things. <laughs> and I can see Hugo doing a little bit of that. I'm overstating to for the sake of the joke, but when he talks about Wellington... And Napoleon, and he compares the two generals. He talks about Wellington as the tactician, but Napoleon as the genius. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the opposite of the way Tolstoy set, set the terms, right? Mm-hmm. Napoleon yeah. was the, the strategic genius who tried to work within the rules, and Kutuzov was the working on inspiration in tune with instinct general. Right. Well, there's another phrase that Hugo Hughes too, if I may use that phrase, which I will repeat. That was fun. (laughs) Um, But he hews to this phrase, giants of action. He calls Napoleon a genius of the ideal and a giant of action. And that seems to be in contrast with what Tolstoy was highlighting as what makes you a genius. That I think Tolstoy would say a genius is one who's capable of inaction, of allowing things to take their course. And Hugo says a a genius or a giant is based on what he does and it's impotent in the face of destiny. Maybe they're making slightly different points. Yeah, I think so. Maybe they are. Yeah, I hadn't gone quite so far as to connect the observation about his essential Frenchness to that observation about historical philosophy. He's very French, though, this Hugo. He's very, well, very I mean, he, how, how else do you manage to get through a very, very deep? I mean, clearly he's done a lot of research, a very detailed analysis of the Battle of Waterloo and call it a victory for France. That is beyond me. Well, he's one of the interesting things to keep in mind is that he's in a very delicate position, whereas Tolstoy was arguing for the essential Russianness of of Kutuzov and the fact that it really did end up leading to Napoleon's downfall at Austerlitz, even though, well, more so Borodino, right? The the Russians technically lost, but in reality, they won because of the outcome. Here, we have a different situation in which to be French at the time that Hugo is writing is to be a little confused about your own allegiances. No kidding. Uh, When it comes to the Battle of Waterloo in particular, at the time that Hugo is writing, the the Bourbons have been restored. Where I guess I, he was writing after the next monarch took the throne, but a monarchy has been restored. Right. And Napoleon, 
even though he says, you know, he, he represents this kind of gaping hole in French identity that they're trying to fill, that they're kind of, because he, he fell, they're secretly attracted to him in some way. Socially, it's not wise to align yourself with Napoleonic values. No, and, no. And he he gets out. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. Please continue. Well, just to put a period on the point, the point is, uh, yes, the French are fighting at Waterloo, but for a cause that is no longer French. And so it, you, his allegiances, Hugo's allegiances as an author are kind of divided. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think you're right about that. And that's why the move toward emphasizing the role of providence in all of this and connecting that role to the changing of the tides of history really gets him off the hook. I mean, if he had stopped with describing the English and describing the French or describing the allied powers and describing the Napoleonic powers in the scene and then gotten us to that scene at the very end where the last little remnant of the the old guard is completely surrounded by cannons Mm -hmm. and they say, brave Frenchmen surrender and the frenchman responds by saying merde <laughs> and they all die right and he talks about how this is the ultimate victory the ultimate victory because it is a man standing up to his opponent and calling out the the folly of the whole scenario why would we kill one another in such fashion what good does it serve the fact that well that section is really interesting and there are a couple places where I think we can draw some connections to our larger story. And that's one of them. The fact that it's, he uses the word excrement Mm -hmm. that comes out at the end. That is this final victory. I see some irony in that. I'm not sure that he is saying, yes, this is the way one should behave. But um, instead that, this is like Fontaine falling, right? This is right. Like I thought descent. that too. Yeah. Well, and the attitude of the Frenchman in this moment is to, he, he calls it, he's sensing a lie within catastrophe. So doubly bitter. And this offer of relief is mockery. It's, it's lying about, well, the nature of their situation, the catastrophic suffering. He wants you to tell the truth and get it over with. And I definitely heard Fontaine in her worst moments in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a triumph of the human spirit, but the fact that it comes to this is to be mourned. Do you think? Maybe, because it is put side by side with Napoleon. Well, human genius struggling against divine destiny, if we accept Hugo's terms. So this sounds like like a death throes of that human spirit. I'm not sure this is the human spirit that we should be putting all of our hope in, but it is courageous in its way. It's folly in the end. You're not as big as divine destiny and God's going to have his way, but, but it's courageous. There's something about it that makes your spirit soar, you know? Yeah. I want to read this. I want to read this bit. This isn't, this is amazing stuff. And this is by, by the way, what caused me as I was reading along in our section for the week, to decide that at least as it comes to narrating battles, I like Hugo better than Tolstoy. Okay. There, I've said it. Gauntlet down. Might it have been possible for Napoleon to win this battle? We answer no. Why? Because of Wellington? Because of Blucher? No. Because of God. 
And this is the part that makes me chuckle. I've made that argument. <laughs> the only reason I lost today was because of God Almighty. <clears throat> because of God. For Bonaparte to be conqueror at Waterloo was no longer within the law of the 19th century. Another series of acts was underway in which Napoleon had no place. The ill will of events had long been coming. It was time for this titan to fall. The excessive weight of this man in human destiny disturbed the equilibrium. This individual alone counted for more than the whole of mankind. This plethora of all human vitality concentrated within a single head, the world rising to the brain of one man, would be fatal to civilization if it endured. The moment had come for incorruptible supreme equity to look into it. Probably the principles and elements on which regular gravitation in the moral and material orders depend had begun to mutter. Reeking blood, overcrowded cemeteries, weeping mothers, these are formidable plaintiffs. When the earth is suffering from a surcharge, there are mysterious moanings from the deeps that the heavens hear. Napoleon had been impeached before the infinite, and his fall was decreed. He annoyed God. Waterloo is not a battle. It is the changing face of the universe. Whoa. That is great writing. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And then he says, Napoleon annoyed God. And that part kind of... It does rankle. There's something. It rankles a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's where I think your point, Ian, about <laughs> the the national spirit, the well, yeah. suppressed national spirit kind of comes through. Yeah, there's some of that in there. It's, it is that it's inconsistent. His view of this is, on the French side, what mattered was Napoleon's offense against God. All was noble in this battle, and all was perfect, and all was carried out to the very end, except God hated Napoleon, and it was time for Napoleon to lose. Hence the French defeat. But even in French defeat, we really actually won. And it was the activity of one little shepherd boy that sent the Prussian reinforcements to the right side of this ravine. And that's what actually caused us to lose. I mean, basically, we won. We more or less won, but God had to make sure Napoleon lost. That's what happens on the French side. On the English side, he says the very opposite of it's down to one man. He says it isn't Wellington that won the battle for the English. It was the English soldiers. English soldiers did it, which sounds like he's giving the English soldiers a grave compliment. And probably he is. But it's hard not to notice the irony of that. On the one hand, the fate of France hinged on one man. On the other hand, the fate of England absolutely didn't hinge on one man because the idea that there's a man greater than Napoleon, I mean, that's just hard to conscience. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I can see what you're arguing for sure. It didn't bother me the same way. What I came away with was, well, counter to your point, an appreciation for the place that Hugo is giving the English. Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't say in a salty way, which I came to expect from Tolstoy, he doesn't give backhanded <laughs> compliments. Right. He actually acknowledges the English spirit and lauds the fact that they have some kind of memorial set up for them because mm. the English did such an amazing thing. And he wants the English, granted, he doesn't want a statue to Wellington. He wants a statue to the English nation. as a nation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. But I did think as a historian who is French, well, not a historian, as an author who is French and speaking to the French people, he didn't have to do that necessarily. Right. And he did. No, it's true. And I wonder what purpose there is in that. Yeah. And I, it's, it is interesting. He's even handed when it comes to his treatment of the tragedy of this battle. 
right? The loss of human life on both sides. Yeah. I wonder if what we keep circling back to, this this contrast between God and man is more of what he's on about than the contrast between English and French. And that's an overstatement. I know. I'm sure he's talking about both. But when he when he says at the beginning of chapter seven, Napoleon in a good mood, he describes Napoleon. He says, the somber man of Austerlitz was cheerful at Waterloo. The greatest must display these contradictions. Our joys have shadows. The perfect smile belongs to God alone. Mm-hmm. That is not, mm-hmm. he's using Napoleon as, as an example, but that mm-hmm. statement is not about Napoleon. That's a statement about human nature yep. and the finite perspective that an individual man has and yeah. the overarching purpose that divinity has for us. Yeah. And that seems to be what he is trying to trace and wrestle through in his narration of Waterloo. It came from the very beginning, I heard that thread being pulled out as the way that we enter in to the story of Waterloo is through the natural scene, mm-hmm. through the garden and through the trees that still have all of the marks of this battle. And nature continues in a peaceful way, in a, in a contented, peaceful, beautiful even scene. And there are scars of, of this violent altercation that happened there. And he's reliving all of the battle through the natural world that, that maintains and continues and is beautiful in spite of all of it. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that I think is a contemplation of the God who made it all. I think he's really trying to get us to, to pit in our minds little tiny humanity and violence and destruction and suffering with the eternal of of providence, of a creator, of the world that he made that's beautiful in spite of it. That's the larger conversation, I think, that I took away from the passage. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. So in that vein, what do you make of the fact that he notices that men have reorganized the battle of Mm. the battlefield, that they have made a memorial to it? And when Wellington came back, he said, this is not my battlefield. I don't, I don't think that he seems to be kind of taking Wellington's side on that, that mm-hmm. there's something destructive about changing the landscape of this yeah. field. Yeah. I was going to say that uh, too. Yeah. And it, it extends actually all the way into, into the fate of the individual soldier in a really interesting way to me, because one of the things he's on about is that a century and the, the tides of, of time and changing fate, and they're all directed by Providence and et cetera, et cetera. But the century doesn't care what you have, what, what you are railing against about it. It is going to do what it is going to do, right? The 19th century didn't have room for a Napoleon. And so Napoleon lost the battle of Waterloo, despite the fact that he was in a superior position, actually pressed his troops at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Just so the century doesn't care about the actual details of the battle. The fact that it's called the Battle of Waterloo, except the whole battle happened three miles from Waterloo, and Waterloo wasn't even involved. How come <laughs> Waterloo gets the credit? Who aren't known? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's that, and then, but imagine for a second in your mind to connect it to the human element of the story, because this is the scene where Pontmercy mm-hmm. is drug out of the rebel by Thenardier. Right? <laughs> Spoiler the, alert, you guys. Pontmercy is going to be important. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a big deal. So, and I think it's really funny that he chose to narrate the entire Battle of Waterloo for this one moment. But I do think that thinking about the fate of this man will help us to understand the state of France, because as Emily said, Napoleon's not in favor anymore, right? It's not fashionable. And so all of the men who gave their lives to Napoleon 
and were his trusted advisors and his best troops who in any normal historical period would have come home as absolute war heroes and probably received positions on his court and et cetera, et cetera. Those guys come home outcasts, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the fact that they displayed the kind of heroism he gives us in this section, which is moving on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. It's moving on the English side. It's moving on the French side. Absolute heroism becomes a point against them rather than a point for them. They actually, according to Hugo in this passage, exhibited the best things about being French. Mm-hmm. And they still are rejected by history in this moment and, and by their own nation in this moment. And that's, a, I think, for him, A, it's just the way things go, but B, it's a grave tragedy that we're swallowed up in all of that. And I think that connects, again, to the social situations in France. And I think the great image of that in that section is the worst one of all, all the men falling into the road yeah. and it just filling up and the, and the, the momentum uh, forcing them into the pit that they can't. They're just being crushed by their own people. Mm -hmm. All of that, I think, is metaphorically significant for the larger ideas that he wants to talk about for the social and and political situation in France. Yeah. That was a really, really graphic scene. I'm trying to think if I've read anything quite as bone-chilling as that. I think... This is a slight change of subject, but I can't think about the the sunken road. If you guys want to talk about that, you can. But if I think about it, I will either cry or puke, neither of which is appropriate as the host of a podcast. Um, but all of that's happening. That's what I'll say out in the battlefield. And the, our entry point, though, into all of this violence and tragedy is a massacre in the chapel mm-hmm. and then the burning of this chapel. And there's mention of a crucifix or a sculpture of Christ yeah. that is not touched. In the face of all of this, the fire comes right up to his toes and doesn't eat doesn't burn the him, wooden yeah. Jesus. And I think that's significant. It's as significant to me in surviving the retelling of this story. It's as significant to me that Christ is not burned in this scenario as the natural imagery maintaining its beauty through mm. the background of each of these scenarios. Those like are the two hope points for me as just, just as an emotional person reading through this scene, there is a steadiness and well, a, a divine presence in the retelling of this story that I know Hugo, the author is putting there for us, but he gave me permission to look for it too. And I appreciated that. What about, but what about the fact that also in that chapel, the infant Jesus's face is blown off. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have thought about that. What's your thought? I have a thought too, but go ahead. Well, what I, what I noticed about that is that the suffering Jesus is the one that, that there's room for in a world Mm -hmm. full of sufferers. Maybe to flip it around, thinking about the infant Jesus will get us nowhere as sufferers, Mm. whereas meditating on the crucifix, the man of sorrows. yeah, Yeah. That's a man that can that can grapple with and can support the weight of a tragedy like the Battle of Waterloo or Borodino or Austerlitz, etc. Well, yeah, the description of the battlefield comes to the image of a cross eventually. Even the the capital letter A has a cross inside it. And he emphasizes that, that this is kind of cruciform what's happening here. I don't know. What do you think about that, Emily? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. 
the fact that the outcome of the battle is a he calls it the end of war basically the end of battling nations it's the napoleon is the last caesar Mm. oh yeah that was a cool image what emerges are the thinkers and there's that passage where he talks about today the great men of the nation let's see it's page 342 he says thank heaven nations are great aside from the dismal ventures of the sword neither germany nor england nor france is held in a scabbard Nowadays, when Waterloo is merely a click of sabers, above Blücher, Germany has Goethe, and above Wellington, England has Byron. A vast rising of ideas is peculiar to our century, and in this dawning, England and Germany have their magnificent share. They are majestic because they think. If Waterloo is the hinge of this century, then... The Enlightenment is ushered in. Yeah, I'd love Mm -hmm. to unpack that a little bit because... It's it's the rise of ideas. There's the contradiction that he makes between Napoleon being the liberal man who tended towards tyranny and the counter-revolution being a monarchical event that tends toward revolution. Everything, the death, I think the image that he's trying to make is a resurrection. Like de- out of the death rises this new life for the century maybe yeah i definitely think that's true but and then but then again we think about where this is all going and the counter revolution the rise of these the fact that you can't put revolution down right is ultimately tragic it is and then also to take a step back from our novel and its context for a second the statement that he's making about napoleon being the last caesar is kind of true, except also the hinge of the next century is going to be not one, but two wars larger than the Napoleonic Wars. (laughs) So there's a sense in which he says the rise Mm -hmm. of ideas has taken over the warring of nations. It's romantic. And it's very romantic and isn't true. And and so we can weep for even deeper reasons than he is aware of at this point, because this was published in 1862, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, This is all very romantic, romantic in the sense of overstated, like a balloon blown up with a principle. You know, he says the next sentence after what Emily was reading, I was just thinking on it. He says the higher plane they ideas bring to civilization is intrinsic to them. It comes from themselves and not by accident. And at the, the end of that little section, he compares this intentional, not by accident kind of movement of a nation that's guided by ideas to battles determining man's future like a lottery ticket, just like chance. That rankled (laughs) because it seemed to be the opposite of what he had just been arguing about a battle. This seemed to be a, a political statement rather than a theological statement. And he's strayed from his point. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I kind of agree with you. I think that's part of what I was trying to get at earlier. He says more than one thing here, and some of the things are a little bit opposed. Personally, I think it's that he can't quite restrain his nationalism, and he also can't quite restrain his his progressive political theology. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think it's nationalism. I think it's the romanticism that he is always going to conflate And to some extent, there's always going to be a conflation of his theology and his social cause. And by the way, we aren't we aren't trying to and I'll let you guys keep keep talking here, but we aren't trying to 
to tell Hugo off for getting his ideology and his theology com- combined or confused. And we aren't trying to tell him that's an invalid thing to put in his novel. We are merely noticing it, right? Right. We're trying to understand the various things that motivate him as an author. We've got thousands of pages left. We want to understand the underpinnings of his particular romanticism, what drives him. This, I think Emily is right, that it's romanticism that he is that he's on about right here. Listen to this phrase. Civilized nations, especially in our times, are neither exalted nor degraded by a captain's good or bad luck. Their specific importance in the human race results from something more than a combat. Their honor, thank God, their dignity, their light, their genius are not numbers that heroes and conquerors, those gamblers, can cast in the lottery of battles. Often, a battle lost is progress attained, less glory, more liberty. The drum is stilled. Reason speaks. It is the game in which he who loses gains. So let us speak calmly of Waterloo on both sides. That definitely sounds like an enlightenment spirit and a romantic reading for a, for a purpose. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And yet he is able to say on page 350, he, he makes the observation, what difference does it make to the infinite? This entire tempest, this vast cloud, this war, then this peace, all of this darkness do not disturb for one moment the light of that infinite eye before which the smallest insect leaping from one blade of grass to another equals the eagle flying from spire to spire among the towers of Notre Dame. So, Ian, you were using the language of it not mattering to to nature, or maybe Megan was making that point, but but and he uses that here too. What does it matter to the infinite? And so there's a, it feels like apathy, but mm. then the comparison he makes between the smallest insect jumping from one blade of grass to the next, that's such an intimate detail that the infinite eye notices. And the fact that he transitions from this grand narration of Waterloo in, and says like, let us remain calm, but then gives us at the very end, this tiny portrait of the scum of the earth scouring the battlefields. And this one man. Well, and and yes, one man being pulled out of that pile of dead bodies and his life is saved. He's just plucked out of that that situation. And there's a trajectory from there that our whole story kind of comes from. I love I love that image. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's the infinite putting in perspective this great conflict, but also noticing and feeling intimately the, the human experience in it. It's very different from, this is a completely different author. We haven't mentioned him yet today, but Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage talks about battle and nature, that same kind of duality. And the nature, the natural world in that story is apathetic towards man's plight, is utterly nihilistic and feels nothing. There's no intimate connection to mankind in that story at all. So I think you're right. That's a, a presence in this, this retelling that's significant. I think it's what makes it the novel so far, at least great, is that he's, he is doing the kind of Tolstoy project. He's narrating for us the movement as he sees it of, of the 19th century towards, you know, towards ideals, towards the thinking man, towards revolution but 
and and that's very impersonal. There's and it doesn't have anything to do with the the Napoleon or Wellington, right? They're mm. just play like Tolstoy. They're just players. Yeah. They're one a multiplicity of causes. They're one of them leading towards this progression. But um, in the midst of that, the infinite plucks one man out of that and and rescues him and it's not social it's not political it's personal it's a personal salvation and Mm -hmm. it's performed at the hand of a villain right the the worst of the worst that the is the one who rescues this man and like maybe that is the cast to think about this whole battle over Mm. this is tragic it's ugly it's suffering it's terrible and yet what comes out of it is rescue, a personal mm. rescue. Yeah, it's really I good. I love that. I also noticed in in this in the way that this whole battle is put together, and this might be a maybe too vague a comment, but he begins the battle. He tells it in waves, which is also kind of like a battle, right? Battles go in, in movements like that. But he starts by giving us the story of the orchard, which is teeny tiny. There, there are in three acts. Yeah. Gives us the story of the orchard, which was, I mean, oh my goodness, you guys. It's so, it reads like a short story, a thrilling short story. I mean, it's, the, the writing was so good. But, so he gives us this little teeny tiny picture and then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger. And pretty soon we're zoomed out looking at the entire battlefield over the course of, you know, three miles or whatever it is. And then he jumps from that bird's eye view of the battle to the philosophical ideas and to the hand of Providence and to the movement of the 19th century and, and it strikes me that's the project of his whole novel in miniature. He's looking at the details of Cosette's life, this tiny little waif of a girl with no mother who lives on the street, and making of that a metaphor for the very largest, highest, biggest things, not just for the fate of a nation and for the movement of a century, but also the way that God deals with all of those things. And that's cool. I think that's a it's a beautiful microcosm of his but, uh, project. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. And I wouldn't forget <laughs> that it comes back down actually. Mm-hmm. That the the shape of the the chapter is back down towards the particular yep. because otherwise I don't know. Otherwise Cosette becomes like a prop. Yeah, an analogy. <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, if if we ended up here in the heavens with the bird's eye view, then we would be tempted to think that that infinite is indifferent, but it isn't. We're not allowed to think that because it swoops back down again into the intimate and the personal. That's good. I like that a lot. If one were to summarize this chapter, I think that uh, <laughs> nobody does it better than Abba. No. <laughs> my, my. At Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. (laughs) And now I feel that I've met my match in much a similar way. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Are you going to give us a dramatic? I love it. Keep going. The The missing number from the Les Mis musical. They cover. They don't don't touch on the historical elements. They they should have. They should have. Waterloo, I was defeated. You won the war. (laughs) (laughs) well thank you all for your attention and thank both of you for your brilliance this has been a delightful conversation hey hey before we sign off for those who 
And I am speaking to all of our listeners who didn't make it through this section because what the heck is happening? Where did Jean Valjean go? In the last three pages of our section for today is when something significant and plot oriented (laughs) happens. And maybe we should summarize it really quick, just in case. I mean, I'm not saying there are lots of them, but I think there might be (laughs) who skip through this section looking for the characters we recognize. Quick summary, Thenardier is a basically a grave robber who, who follows along behind. This is like pre-Cosette. He's a young man. But he follows along behind the army like a crow stripping dead bodies and making a fortune off the dead guys. And he sees this hand sticking up out of a pile of bodies that has a gold ring on it. And in stripping the ring off the hand, he realizes the man is alive. And he pulls him out to rob him of all of the rest of his things and kind of coincidentally saves his life. That man who he has saved is going to be significant, and his name is Pont Merci. Is there anything else we need to say about that? No, but it's, well, yeah, it's a very Dickensian moment, right? And it's Mm -hmm. all, they're all masters of the same century. But the fact that our minor characters all are related to each other in some providential way. Very, mm-hmm. very Dickens. Yeah. Anyway, I just didn't want us to go without without helping out those uh, <laughs> members of our group who aren't reading this for the Battle of Waterloo, and that was not what they wanted this week. I have heard that this is the longest digression in the novel. That, Of course, there are more coming. Of course, the sewers of Paris are coming, but this is the longest one. So we made it. It wasn't that bad. I think that it wasn't as bad as War and Peace. I think we're going to be fine. No, I agree. I <laughs> could it be it that we read it faster? Could that be part of it? <laughs> it could be, but also it could be, and this is not to cast a dire Paul on the rest of the show, but it could be that it wasn't that bad because it is essentially a narrative about a battle mm-hmm. instead of being he, it's a not narrative a about sewers. I don't think that's a thing. what oh no we'll see we'll see we gotta trust hugo here is the drama we have to hew to hugo who laid out the paris sewers i think that it's nice that hugo isn't trying to create a new genre or like a new form right this is a novel and i i I tentatively trust him Mm -hmm. to keep it a novel at this point well i am i am absolutely loving it I will also give my trust over to Hugo, and we hope the rest of you will continue to join us as we plot our way through Les Miserables. Thank you both for being here. Thank all of you listeners again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time around on How to Eat an Elephant. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.